Here at Text Talks, we constantly strive to spotlight authentic music trailblazers, which is why we're excited to have Text Talks styled by Ray-Ban this summer, helping us in our pursuit of featuring artists who are not afraid to be their authentic selves. You've got the look. Now come and have some fun with us in the sun. Together, Text Talks and Ray-Ban are saying, if you've got a challenge for us, no matter what it is, you are on. You can't predict the light, but with Text Talks and Ray-Ban, you are always ready to capture it by living each day in the moment. You are on. Define your style at superbulous.com. Welcome to Tex Talks. I am Tex, and today I am talking to the singer, songwriter, and guitarist of a progressive neo-soul group from Melbourne in Australia who make music that is, in their own words, multi-dimensional, polyrhythmic, gangster shit. I'm already obsessed. As the first ever Australian band nominated for a Grammy Award in an R&B category, this self-termed future soul band gradually won support from a wide array of tastemaking DJs and industry peers, and the list of artists who have sampled their music will make you weep. But more on that later. I am, of course, talking about Hiatus Coyote's Nay Palm. Nay, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me. It's only a pleasure. Now, in March, we crossed the year mark with the COVID-19 pandemic. And here in South Africa, I'm not sure if you know, I don't know why you would, but our lockdown laws were pretty extreme. Like, you couldn't buy cigarettes, and you couldn't buy alcohol. Like, that was illegal for the longest time. My fellow South African. Wow. And I know, I know, trust me. And, and they did the last time that they banned alcohol was a week I think it was oh, just a week before New Year's Eve. Can you imagine? That's crazy. I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I get, I get like lock-in laws for like, you know, staying away from other people, but specifically like outlawing alcohol and cigarettes seems mm. kind of crazy, especially because people got hella time on their hands. Exactly, and you know, I think that the reason that the government did that here in South Africa is because we have huge problems when it comes to alcohol and the consumption of alcohol, especially drinking and driving. And it goes back a long way in our history. And I want to get into mm. that because we're going to be here forever. Um, mm. But making the sale of alcohol specifically illegal. Cigarettes, uh, I don't know. I think that was just a whole another issue. But, but it really did lower the rate of extreme cases in our ICU. And it really did make a difference. Um, mm. But I know that lockdown laws were different all over the world. And mm -hmm. uh, I have family in Australia and I have a cousin who lives in Melbourne. And she told me that the lockdown laws were pretty hectic for like a large part of the lockdown. Like you couldn't leave your suburb or like you'd be in some real trouble. And I know that you are in Melbourne as well. Um, what was your experience of lockdown like there? Uh, I mean, we had a pretty strict lockdown about, you know, who you could hang out with and where you could go. So I think it was like 105 days 
straight of like oh my god you're only like i was pretty lucky that um we had an album to make so i mostly spent my time at the studio we work out of a home studio that bendo mm -hmm. who plays bass um it's his space so it was all right because i mean i'm kind of a hermit anyway um so i just kind of came here and traveled through you know my creativity or whatever but there was a point where we couldn't leave our suburbs and i the rest of the guys live in the same suburb but i'm out of the the radius so like mm. we kind of had to finish the record before that law was put in place so there was a little bit of a rush for that but um for the most part you know i just like usually you know our main source of income is from touring which is fun you know and it, and it's like it's cool but it can be a lot so and it also can kind of take away from studio time so mm. with the rest of the world kind of standing still it it um it really allowed us to finish our album <laughs> so like you know like there's a lot of um i don't think it's easy for anyone but like it's almost like a blessing that it was so strict here because we don't really have any cases at the moment. And, you know, and like compared to somewhere like India, like it's, it's actually a privilege yeah. to be able to isolate, you know, or have access to like running water, you know, and these things that you take for granted when you live in a, in a more developed, I guess, country. So people like a lot of people were upset by it, but, the results were, you know, less casualties. And it's like, you know, for the most part, it's like, it's a blessing to have a home to be stuck in anyway. So, mm -hmm. you know, I wasn't all the way mad at it. You know, just before COVID really took hold and countries started to lock down, I spent two and a half weeks, I think, in Sydney. And I had mm. An amazing time, but damn, everywhere I went, people were like, you're in the wrong city. You should be in Melbourne because it's mm. the heart of Australian music and creative culture. Would you say Would you say that that's a fair assessment growing up and, and li still living in Melbourne? Yeah, I mean, Sydney's cool. Um, it has the beach. <laughs> but... um. Ultimately, like, there was, there used to be a pretty banging live music scene there. And then they introduced, um, like, slot machines or, like, public gambling. And it ended up being more financially viable for a lot of clubs to just have, like, gambling instead of paying live music and people buying drinks. So it That's kind so of, the mean. introduction of that killed a lot of the art scene there because... There was literally no way to play. Whereas Melbourne is like, it's kind of a mixing pot of um, of the arts. You know, it's definitely you know colder and the weather is trash. But you know, I've, I think as a result, you know, like there's more um, creative juices flowing. You know, like mm. you tend to write better things when you're going through it as opposed to just like living in paradise on the beach. There's only so much you can really you know, you, I, I, like you would be pretty contempt. So what is there to kind of explore creatively? So Sydney's like, Sydney's cool and it has beaches, but Melbourne's like got the grit, you know? Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And that is usually where art likes to thrive. Definitely. I mean, I spend most of my time on Bondi. And I mean, I'm not really a beach person. And right. <laughs> once you've seen a beach once, that's pretty much it. And I really mm. felt like I struggled um, to find that grit that you're talking about, you know, those mm. spaces where um, where art and music thrive in, in Sydney. So, Yeah, well, that's why. That's why, because I introduced gambling instead of it and it kind of like the music scene took a really big toll but it wasn't always like that because like Pez who plays drums in hiatus he used to live in the Blue Mountains which is like this um it's just out of Sydney but when he was living there there was a really great scene there but I guess it just you know got more gentrified and shriveled up Mm. as a lot of places you know do (laughs) <laughs> I think the Melbourne aside, you you also had an incredibly creative mother who was a contemporary choreographer and had the widest range of musical taste. Mm. Would you say your musical roots were nurtured by her from an early age? Yeah. I mean, I think creativity in general, you know, like she used to be an art teacher and like like she was a a single mother raising six kids oh and we were like we were wild <laughs> you know like now when i think about like imagining having six kids and looking after them by myself is like sounds like a nightmare but um you know like things like i i remember like one of my earliest creative memories was like drawing on the wall and Instead of getting in trouble, she put up paper along the walls of every room in the house and left like um, markers and pencils and stuff along the edge. So it was like, if you are going to draw on the walls, like let it be something valuable, you know, or something that you put your intention into. So it was always really supported, you know, and um, I guess like for them, like less like there was less like musical influences, you know, like we were pretty poor. So I never really had like access to like music lessons and shit, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, but we'd always drive around in the car listening to Stevie Wonder super loud. And like everyone in my family sings. So I guess I learned how to harmonize just from like, you know, road trips with my family. I mean, I'm an, I'm an only child, so I can't mm. even imagine growing up with six other siblings. That's that's a lot. But it's a lot. I mean, in such a creative household with your mom, I mean, was it more like a sort of Jackson Six kind of scenario where you're all, um, you know, playing well, playing music together or, or creating together or you know was it more competitive like if maybe your sister picked up an instrument like you know you would pick it up so that you could outdo her or uh I mean like so I was like split up from my family when I was about nine years old um so it was like my very early years it was you know all of us like making up dance routines and drawing on the walls and things of that nature, you know. But, um, yeah, from, like, the age of nine, I was, like, 
we were all split up and I was in like the foster care system. So it kind of, uh, yeah, it's like the very early years were like that. But for the second half of my childhood, it was pretty scattered, I guess. Mm -hmm. But, you know, as a result, like, I feel like that plays a role in my creativity is because I had a lot to process. And I've always, I mean, I've always been musical, you know, that like there's not really a time I remember, like I've been singing forever. Or if there was like a piano at someone's house, I'd like give it a go, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but that was just kind of like natural instinct, you know. Um, but there was definitely not like the scenario where my mom was trying to raise me to be a lawyer or something. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I the impression that I get from you is that you are somebody who radiates positivity and and good vibes. And now, you know, hearing you talk about being split up from your siblings and going into foster care, I mean, it's it's a pretty hard life for a kid. How how do you come out on the other side with such uh, a with such a, a a together sense of yourself? Well, I think um, it's like sink or swim, you know. Mm. And like and like, I don't know. I, you you have to like when you're. When your security and your equilibrium is taken away from you, you have to fight to find it for yourself. And so it's it's interesting that that duality exists of having like a pretty um, turbulent childhood of like, you know, like um, I'm an orphan. I lost my mother. I lost my father. I lived with different homes. Like, you know, it these these things like they can shatter you, but it means, you know, you're, you're surviving. And, and anyone who's like really endured heavy things in their life, like, so, like some of the most beautiful people I know have lived the craziest lives. And some, of, and some people who have everything handed to them on a silver spoon are like, you know, not necessarily the best people. <laughs> and I think I think there's something in that. I think when you have to, you know, when you have to choose life, you mm. know, or like, I don't know, I could have had a very different life. You know, there was definitely, like there was a moment where I was like 15, homeless, you know, and, uh, my life could have gone a very different direction, but I guess music was always at the center of it and really a, a cathartic tool, you know? And so mm -hmm. it, uh, it was like a lifeline. And why I choose to share my music with the world is that like maybe someone else can get something from it, you know? And not everybody has those tools. You know, I've been really fortunate that songwriting has been such a a healing process for me but like there are a lot of people going through it that don't know how to do that but they can still listen to a record and feel understood you know and music mm -hmm. is like that for me like so many records have saved my life you know so it's kind of 
It's like you kind of have to bleed for it, but ultimately, if you uh, if your heart's in it for the right reasons, then it can, then you can, you know, hopefully influence people and contribute something beautiful. I mean, like, think about like, like you know, hip hop. Or flamenco. You know, a, a lot of these genres come from like, like struggle. Yeah. You know, and and then and it's kind of like you can't fucking take that away from them. You know, it's mm. it's like it's 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 the reaction to oppression or the reaction to hardship that creates like there's this saying that's like pressure makes diamonds you know Mm -hmm. and the arts are yeah so it's like i don't i don't i'm i'm not you know i'm not sad for my upbringing because it shaped me and it makes me want to create sanctuary for other people you know Mm. i read that one of your first jobs was performing at this massive park called edinburgh park where they had these insane fire dances and you'd meet all these people who were like you, like drawn to the fire. Can mm. you tell me a little bit more about these experiences? Because it honestly sounds magical, like a healing ritual almost. Well, Edinburgh Gardens was like, it's just a park <laughs> in Melbourne. And I, uh, I, um, when my mother died, I moved to the country and lived with wildlife carriers and, you know, cruised around. And then when I was 15, I moved back to Melbourne and I was, I was homeless. I got a ride with a taxi driver who was driving back to Melbourne. And um, so I didn't live anywhere. And I was walking past this park at night and there were all these fire dances there. And they had like DJs set up and stuff. They did it every Wednesday. And so, um, I don't know, I'm kind of a bit of a pyromaniac. I love fire, I always have. <laughs> and so I just kind of wandered in and then like people would teach me how to do it. And you know, I, I, I'd like stay on people's couches and I got work doing it, you know, like performing, doing fire performance and napalm was like, uh, a stage name for for that ah. because it's like flammable and so I was actually doing that before I was performing music um I mean they don't do that anymore but it was just like you know I was like lost and young and it was a it was like a really safe community and I mean I don't know what it's like in South Africa but like people don't really want to live in share houses with 15 year olds it's kind of like you know <laughs> so I was really welcomed by the fire community and you mm-hmm. know had places to stay and a way of feeding myself and yeah and that's why I was like with my homebody video I really wanted to you know celebrate that a little yeah there's always an excuse to set something on fire in my music <laughs> videos <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh I love that um but in 2011 Paul Bender who is your now bassist. He sees you perform solo and you guys get talking. Mm. And then a year later, you start working together. And then shortly after that, Perrin and Simon get involved 
and hiatus coyote is born. Did you guys write an entirely new repertoire round about this time? Or did you sort of have the rest of the band expand on the music that you had already written? Uh, so I started doing like some solo shows and Bender saw me play. And I, because I, I don't have any music theory background, but the music that I write is complicated and so it was always kind of difficult to try and get a band together because I didn't have the language to explain to people what I was doing. And it wasn't like a simple thing you could just jump on. So he like chord charted all my songs out. And um, we had a couple of different like musicians come and go trying to get the right fit, you know. But um, the first rehearsal I had with the full lineup for hiatus we were we were working on my songs um the first the very first rehearsal was working on songs that i'd written like nakamara and jekyll and fingerprints Mm. um but it was it was a very organic natural chemistry that we had together and when we started making talk tomahawk a lot of the songs were we can't just us playing around in the studio and coming up with stuff from scratch. So initially it was like them working on my songs, but it very quickly evolved to us just being nerds and trying shit in the studio. <laughs> like the world is softly lulls and Ocelot and Sphinx gate and rainbow roads. They all just kind of came from pure collaboration, hmm. but it's like that even still now, like, you know, we're on our, third record and I still write songs like whole songs but we also write a lot of stuff from scratch so it's kind of like there's no real formula but the chemistry is there I kind of feel like that's where the real art uh, is born where there's no formula if you are lucky enough to be able to be in a studio be in a rehearsal space with your band or you know with session musos and you can just all feed off each other and something happens very organically during a session I feel like that's where the magic is Hmm. well there's something to be said for both sides of the coin you know like I really love being alone and writing and arranging stuff but it's a different it's a different thing when you're reacting to each other's ideas. And then Mm. the extension of that is when you're in a studio setting and you're making stuff up, you can be reacting to the equipment that you're using or how it sounds in your headphones. And then it's another evolution. Um, But yeah, I guess you can always tell when people have like worked out a formula and then they just continue Mm. it, you know, like this, it's like, yeah. It's. I feel like if you're too comfortable or if you're not challenging yourself, then you kind of. It's kind of again like, what's the point, you know? Mm -hmm. So for us, it's like the exploration is a big drive in, you know, what we do and why Mm. we do it. I think it was about maybe a year into you guys playing together and being a band, you open for. Taylor McFerrin, who's the son of the legendary Bobby McFerrin, but also Mm. a masterful muso in his own right. And he then Mm -hmm. introduces you to Giles Peterson, absolute legend, and people are starting to pick up on your vibe more and more. And then one day you wake up and 
Prince has tweeted about your track, Nakamara. Mm. And the tweet reads, don't worry, just click. Firstly, (laughs) getting Prince's attention is huge, but you also sort of get his blessing in a way. Like what's going through your mind when you wake up to this awesomeness? I mean, it was kind of just like a domino effect and it all happened really quickly. You know, like I think the first one was like Questlove and then Erica Badu and then Prince. So by the time Prince came around, it was like it was like part of the same buzz, I guess. The trifecta. <laughs> yeah, it was just like it was like, oh, another one, you know. Um <laughs> but uh yeah, I mean I guess the cool thing is that like, I don't know, some people make make a lot of assumptions about us and like, oh, they're successful because of their, you know, their record label or whatever, Mm, or mm. maybe they come from money, you know. But the reality is, is like we actually owe our whole career to the support of other artists. It's other artists that have gotten our music out there, you know. Like the support of someone as iconic as Prince is like far more valuable in Money your career. Money can't buy that shit. Exactly. So, you know, it was super awesome. And I think, like, the cool thing about Prince is he, you know, before I guess it was trendy, he's always been really supportive of female musicians, mm. you know. And, he and like, in, its, in an era where it was less popular to do so, you know what I mean, where it was almost, like, shocking. It's like, oh, you have a female guitarist? Like, what is that? Yeah. And I think the fact that I was on his radar was really um was really beautiful, you know? It's like ultimately like when these when these great artists, you know, support you, the thing that matters the most to me is that I feel seen, you yeah. know? And if anybody's going to understand, they're going to understand because that's their language. They are they it's the very fabric of their being. So when they can resonate with what you do, you feel you feel seen, you know, and it's not like it's not about the hype that they can create for you. It's like it's a mutual respect, you know? And so like yeah, with Prince it was just like I mean same with Erica, like it was like there was no real like oh my god fandom moment. She just it was very natural and she she made me feel really welcomed and loved. And um, yeah, I mean, and the cool thing with Prince is like he invited us to play at his house like three times and we never got to go, which I was super gutted about um, because we had like, like I think the first time he invited us, he saw us on the Arsenio Hall show. So like he knew we were in LA and he was like, come play at Paisley Park like tomorrow. But we had a sold out show somewhere else and you know, like you can get sued for just canceling yeah, random yeah. shows. It's like so for me, I'm like, I don't care. It's Prince. Let's go to Prince's house. But like, <laughs> from a like, you know, business side of things, it's like you can't really pull out Damn it. of other stuff. <laughs> so there was like three times where that happened, and then eventually we were like playing in Minneapolis, and he rocked up and watched us play. Oh my god! So it was like he came to us and um. Which was awesome. And like, yeah, I guess like the thing with Prince is 
I later found out through one of his close friends that he would listen to Borderline with My Adams a lot. You know, and like everyone, everyone likes Nakamura. You know, Nakamura is like the kind of the most accessible one. But Borderline with My Adams was like one of the deeper pieces that I I'd written, and it nearly didn't make the album because the label was like, ah,、oh, we don't really need it. You know, the album's long enough. You don't need to put that on there. Whereas for me, it was like, this is my opus, kind of. Like for the time, I was like, this is the most. Sincere thing I've written, and so when I found out that out of all of our music, that that was his favorite, it was like, it was yeah, just like、Special. he gets it, and of course he gets it because, you know that these、Prince. artists, yeah, well he, that's his whole life, you know, <laughs> like he's a he lives and breathes music, so if anyone's gonna understand you as a musician, it'll be another musician, you know.、Mm. Now we have to talk about the Grammy nomination because when you signed with Salam Remy, who、mm. uh, is the genius producer behind a lot of Amy Winehouse's earlier work,、um, mm. when、uh, you signed to his label Flying Buddha and then you re-released your debut album Talk Tomahawk,、mm. and then you feature Q-Tip on Nakamura, and things are popping off, and then bam, the Grammy nomination hits. Do you remember this time clearly, or is it just sort of a blur? And were you caught up in all of the incredible things that were happening around the nomination? Uh, we we've actually have two nominations, but the first one, I was in Russia, and I was doing. My partner at the time was doing a tour. And so I was the support just because I wanted to go to Russia because I'd never been. Of course. And、uh, there was there's like a loophole that you like because it's like hard to get a visa. I mean, not anymore, but like at the time, it was hard to get a visa for Russia. So like there's a loophole that if you go via cruise ship, then you get seventy two hours, like like a temporary visa. So I rock up to Russia on a thirteen-hour cruise ship in the middle of winter, <laughs> like minus thirty degrees is not the time you want to be on a cruise ship. Oh my god! And like we rock up and we've got seventy-two hours, and so like did a show in Saint Petersburg and one in Moscow. And when I played in Moscow, the promoter was like, basically, they couldn't afford accommodation, so they were like. I was like, oh, you know, like, where's the accommodation? He's like, oh no, we're just gonna stay awake all night, drinks on us,、Drink、and then、vodka. you get the, and then you get the train back to St. Petersburg in the morning. So, you know, I, I played a show in Moscow, been awake all night, super drunk, get to St. Petersburg like six in the morning before I had to get on this cruise ship, and、um, this woman Kasusha, who I became friends with. Her、um, her babushka made me borsk, which is like the soup, beetroot soup. Yeah, and she's like,、mm. you have to have my babushka's borsk before you go. And she like, it was like six in the morning, and I'm in a kitchen with her babushka, and she's feeding me soup. And it was like the first time I had reception in ages. And so on my Facebook, I had all these like 
this is when I found out that we'd be nominated for a Grammy. It was like, my whole Facebook was like, congratulations on the Grammy nomination. I'm like, what are they talking about? And then eventually it clicked over and I was like jumping around the kitchen, like so excited with this old Russian woman who didn't understand a word of English. So she didn't know what we were celebrating, but she was just like about it, you know, we're just like, yeah. And it was, it was just this really beautiful moment of like, hey, something really like exciting happening for my career, but just this like, this gorgeous like unity of like human connection with somebody even like who was just happy for me without even knowing what the context was. It was really beautiful. And I'll always remember her. Like anytime anyone brings up the Grammys, I'll like, I think of her, you know, you know, it was crazy. Nay, I've been doing this podcast for just over a year now. And Mm. I can say with a hundred percent certainty that that is the best story that I've heard on this podcast. <laughs> One hundred so percent. I will remember that story until the day I die. <laughs> she <laughs> was so okay. cool. She was just like we we're just like dancing around the kitchen, and she's like holding my hands, and we're like laughing, but she just didn't know why. She was just just about it. It was really awesome. So. <laughs> No, I love that. I mean, I don't really know uh, how, what kind of story is going to top this, but I want to talk about firstly the sampling, but then the sampling that leads into what I think will be an interesting story. So around about, uh, let's say 2016, everybody from Anderson Park to Drake starts sampling your music for for their for their songs. Mm. But I want to talk about Beyonce specifically mm-hmm. because she sampled the world it softly lulls in one of her tracks, mm. which I think is wild because that song came to you when you were like 17, splashing around in a waterfall, tripping on <laughs> San Pedro. So yeah, wow, you've done your research. <laughs> I know, I know. So I want to know about this particular day that inspired this track uh, more mm. than the part about the actual Beyonce sample because I know that it's going to be good. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> um, there's this place called Wanganui, which is like, it's near Byron Bay. So it's like beautiful mm-hmm. coastal rainforest part of Australia. And um, I have a friend who does like rainforest rehabilitation so like replanting native plants and stuff. Oh, wow. And so they know like the spots, you know, like they're like the beautiful spots. And um, I was with a guy I was seeing at the time and uh, they drove us, they drove us to the base of this walking track and just like left us. And um, I had San Pedro, which is the indigenous word for it is hauchumo, which I just recently learned. Hauchumo. And it's basically like mescaline ah. cactus, which is mm. like, I mean, cactus medicine is really beautiful. It's like, you know, it's not like any other kind of like recreational drug or alcohol mm-hmm. or whatever, because it's like, it's plant medicine, you know? And so it, it, it basically just opens you up to you know the natural world and you become more in tune with it and um it's the same as peyote right same as peyote same as ayahuasca or even like ganja you know like it's it just like it makes you more aware of your natural self i guess Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so we um 
climbed up the, there's like these massive boulders covered in like moss and there's like giant monitor lizards and we basically spent the whole day climbing up this waterfall and then like so there was like a kind of a trickle of a creek and eventually like we got pretty high up in the cliff like in the waterfall and um there was this like ochre cave um and i was i was like drinking the water from the waterfall and then singing back into this cave and the melody for the world at softly lulls was just what i happened to be singing um, and it was a really beautiful day it was a really beautiful day and like you know just like just exploring the natural world and and um it's like one of my favorite days of my whole life And then, um, so I've had this reoccurring dream since I was pretty little. And I had it again kind of recently after that trip. And like, basically, I wake up in a hospital room and all my teeth are silver. Oh and there's God. a big wall that's like colored glass. And I walk up to the glass and lightning comes out of my fingers and smashes the wall. And then, and then I start playing with lightning outside and my teeth, my silver teeth are like conducting the electricity. And it's this reoccurring dream I've had as long as I can remember. And, um, and I had it again. And so I just like wrote the story of the dream to the melody that I wrote at the waterfall. And that's what the world of softly lulls is. It's like mm. the lyrics are about this dream. And so It was really crazy that something so like nerdy and natural and kind of witchy, you know, like mm -hmm. part of my my life and my creativity. And then to have someone as iconic as Beyonce, like singing the melody and knowing that that's reaching the ear, like that it's come from such an intimate place of like deep in this waterfall to then reaching the ears of like thousands of people was really, I don't know. It was really, it was really curious, you know? And like, and especially with that sample, cause like it was like a live recording that they sampled and it's not until the very end of the song that she actually sings the line that I'm mm -hmm. singing. And I actually like, it was cool. You know, we've had a lot, we've had like Drake and, Kendrick Lamar, there's a lot of really amazing artists that have sampled us, but I was like listening to that when it got to the end and she was singing that line, I like started crying and I was just like, this is actually really magical. <laughs> you know, it was really, it kind of hit me. The gravity of it hit me and I was like, this is, it's really special, like just the journey that songs and ideas can go on and you never know where it's going to end up, you know? Exactly, because on the day that Beyonce dropped the track and everyone's going mad about it, but mm. then conversely, some woman in Madagascar messages you on Instagram telling you <laughs> that she was doing field work and she just named a bamboo lima after you. And yeah. like, these are two completely polar opposite contributions to the world, but that's what your music has the power to do. But what's going through your mind And also your heart as you realize you're reaching people all across the world in such different but powerful ways. Yeah, I mean, like to be honest, that was kind of, because I'm such a nature nerd, like that was 
you know, like there's like the Grammys and all these accolades, but like having a bamboo lima named after you I love that. is like one of the biggest honors you could have. It was just like, and she sent me photos of it and like, I became like a weirdly maternal over it and would like check in. I'm like, how's she doing? Is she okay? And then like, um, she messaged me like not long after and Nay, the lima had had a baby. And so the lemurs um, in this particular forest, like how they separated them by like name groups. So there was like the musician group and then there was like Harry Potter <laughs> And then there were like scientists. So I was in the musician group. And when Nay had a baby, she asked me to, I got to name the baby. And so, and it had to be a musician. Um, and so I named the baby Omo after Omo Sangari, who's like one of my favorite singers. She's from Mali. She's, she's like, She's like a mother. She's so beautiful. Umu Sangari. Um, Umu Sangari, yeah. What and, a beautiful um, name. Yeah, so there's a lima called Umu now. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, ultimately, like, it's, it's like, it's the thing that gives me the most hope in the world, you know? Like... Any artists, we're very, we're very, you know, self-critical and like even the most established artists can doubt themselves. And especially mm -hmm. once you're in the public eye and everyone has an opinion about you, you know, and it's like, yeah. I mean, like even someone like, I don't know, as big as Cardi B. Sometimes I see her in her comments on Instagram, like defending herself. I'm like, she's Cardi B. You don't have to talk to these people, you know, but like. It's a human nature, you know, and so I guess remembering, like, the thing that gives me the most, like, validation is that my music can exist in many different scenarios, you know. And, and like, you know, I've had people, I had someone write to me who is a refugee from Syria, and they were like, And this was like super close to my heart because two of my besties are refugees from Iraq, mm -hmm. you know. And so I, I got this message from someone and basically like they were traveling to Cyprus and um, they, there's a very long, sad story that I'm not going to get into because I don't think we have time for it. But basically this person through a series of trials and tribulations eventually gets to Cyprus, leaving their whole family behind. Mm -hmm. And they wrote to me and they said that the only song they could listen to was Malika. And that like, I mean, if you think of a context of like a refugee leaving a war-torn country, like the amount of emotional depth and heartache you would have to go to leave your home country and leave your family for your survival, mm -hmm. you know, it's massive. And, um, and this guy wrote to me and he was like, all he could listen to was Malika. And it was just like, the fact that someone going through something that I couldn't even imagine. Like I've had a crazy life, but I can't, I can't possibly imagine what that would feel like. Mm. And it, it, was, it was a sense of sanctuary for him. 
And that was kind of like a big wake up call. And that was like, you know, it's like, it's hard because I'm in the entertainment in industry, but I don't see myself as an entertainer. Like that's not really why I do it. And I just want to, as someone who's had their concept of home taken away from them from a young age, it's really important for me to be able to offer that to other people. And yeah. And I've, I've just had so many amazing people write to me to tell me about how our music like fits into their, their worlds, you know. You mentioned that you are a nature fan, a nature friendly. <laughs> um, and this makes a lot of sense to me, Ne, because you, bird sounds feature very prominently on your records. Um, mm. Like your parrot, who was featured on your second album, but he shame sadly passed away not so long ago um but on He's your on upcoming album too. yes so on mood valiant you have an interlude where you featured all of his bird sounds which i think is so dope uh <laughs> but you also have a track called making friends with studio owl <laughs> which oh, is yeah. a great title from the first record um, Personally, I'm a dog lady, but I mean, you know, would you consider yourself a bird lady? And if yes, where did this love for birds start? I mean, I think, I think I'm like, I love a lot of, I love animals, you know, I think they're, they're some of the last sources of real magic on this planet. And um, the bird thing just kind of happened, you know, it's not. It's not something I seek out, but like I hadn't reared a crow and I've looked after a wedge-tailed eagle before and oh, wow. I had a, a sparrow called Pief and Charlie, you what know, and so it's like name? Uh, Charlie Parker. Charlie Parker. Yeah. <laughs> Strong name. I just, he just flew over the fence and I ended up with him. This is the thing is like, there. it's not like I go out and buy a birds they just find me and I end up looking after them but I think maybe the reason is because they're birds are very emotionally intelligent you know mm. and they there's like like they're very very sensitive and uh I guess I don't know like it's so after my mother died and I moved to the country I live with a family of people who were wildlife carers and so like we we had a dingo, which is kind of like, oh, it's wow. kind of like an Australian wild dog, and mm-hmm. uh, like a coyote or a or or a wolf or something, and they're called dingoes. And um, when I was grieving the death of my mother, this dingo would like sit with me, and just like, it really um, I don't know. Sometimes like words can escape you, you know. And real um, comfort can come from music or can come through silent empathy. And I think animals are the best at that, you know? Definitely. And Yeah, and I so, wholeheartedly agree. Yeah, you know, and like, and that was really like the concept of looking after something kind of completed this like 
emptiness within myself from being an orphan. It's like, okay, you don't have that, but you can be that for someone else, you know? And so I've always had animals in my life and um, it's uh, it's so valuable to me. I, I think like, it, I mean, it brings me so much like real tangible joy. And like even like over Christmas recently, I rescued like four kittens that were oh, going to wow. get put down and they were totally wild. And um, I like found, I found homes for them and I kept one and, you know, like I just, it's something that uh, aside from music, I feel like it, like my dream is to like be a wildlife carer, you know, maybe look after bats. I love bats. They're my favorite. They're like the puppies of the sky. I love that. Puppies of the sky. They are. Like in Australia, we have fruit bats and they literally look like puppies and they eat fruit and they're really beautiful. I think uh, when I was in Sydney and I went to the zoo, which was great. I mean, I'm a, I, I love uh, anything aquatic to do with the ocean. So the mm. aquarium in Sydney was like a dream come true for me to to visit. It's it's one of the most beautiful places I've I've ever been to. Um but the zoo was so interesting obviously to see all of the animals that you can't see anywhere else like the kangaroos and the koalas and uh the mm. um I want to say possum. Um but there was also there were two bat exhibits so there were the fruit bats and then the mm. carnivorous ones. And I got to see both of them at feeding time. And it was so interesting. Yeah. Well, if you ever come to Melbourne, you should hit me up. There's a like, just around the corner from where I live, there's a whole colony of fruit bats. What? They're like the big ones, the big ones that eat fruit. And you can like, you go down to the river and they're, they're there throughout the day. And then when the sun sets, they all fly off. And so it's crazy. It's like the sky is black with just like bats and it's just that crazy. Like the most beautiful thing to see. It's Freaky, so awesome. And it's beautiful. really, it's really, well, this is the thing is I love scaring <laughs> tourists when they come here. Like, like I, I have like, whenever like musician friends from like the States or something come, like I love tricking them because like the bats here, they're huge, but they're totally harmless like they they mm -hmm. eat fruit but i i like to trick people into thinking that they're like vampires and they get really scared it's funny but they're harmless <laughs> so i mean we so 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 we've we've spoken a lot about your your music and how it touches people and and how it touches different kinds of people from different walks of life but i really feel like there's an innate spirituality throughout your albums as well as a, a, a tenderness and an empathy but what I want to know is what can we expect from your upcoming album Mood Valiant that I'm incredibly excited about that's dropping in June can we expect more of this narrative or have you gone down a different path I mean you know like I said before there's no real formula but it's all just you know, like, it's like spirituality is a hard thing to, to try and put in a box, you know. I think I'm naturally curious and in love with the natural world and the universe and how things work. And 
and uh you know and the intention of like ritual and things and so i think that's always going to be a part of our music because that's a part of who i am you know um and i think uh you know they like music music essentially is like a form of alchemy you know and alchemy can be interpreted as magic or it can be interpreted as, as science you know it's both and so i think uh like i think there's always going to be a really strong intention within our music but i don't know if like this is the thing that will always be there i guess but it's not like oh this album is going to be more this or less this it's just it kind of reveals itself to you as you go you know like every song is its own universe and you kind of yeah you you are, mm. like you're uncovering it so it's kind of a, it's kind of a surprise for us you know like when we're working on a track you might have an opinion of what it should be in the beginning and then it turns out to be something completely different you know and mm-hmm. and that's the beauty of art is that it's it's like it's elusive and uh and it's like intangible and you've got to try and like grasp it you know and like essentially i see music as like old things in the universe exist somewhere as some frequency some some molecular form and as a musician it's my job to translate it you know it's like it's like you are doing a service of like the translation of ideas or of you know of uh things like that so yeah i don't really know what the next i, I can't really I don't know what the next album will be, but it'll be a surprise for both you and everyone in the band. And I cannot wait to unwrap that little package and see what the surprise is inside. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, but I wanted to say thank you for joining me on Text Talks and I wish you all the success with your new album and your string of upcoming gigs Thank you. and your fruit bat colony is the first thing on my list to experience when I am next in Melbourne. If you're in Melbourne, it's like super close to the city and I'd be more than happy Amazing. to show you. I'm definitely going to take you up on that offer. <laughs> 100%. Right. If I were a slug, I would reach out with the blue rose of elves, wrapping myself around you high up in the treetops. We could get lost in our love. If I were a seahorse, I'd only dance around you underneath the green water. I could fill you up, you could be my daddy, yeah. We could get lost in our lust. Oh, us. Oh, oh, I wanna do one. And it's oh, oh, I wanna do one.
to Hiatus Coyote for joining us in studio. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Text Talks. Be sure to check out texttalks.com for more episodes. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, or listen to Text Talks on all good streaming platforms. Also, a huge shout out to Tom's, the only music store, for being the most incredible technical supplier. From myself, Tex, our producers, Jonathan Engs and Matthew Lewitz, and our research assistant, Al Clapper, catch you on the flip side.